So we are in the middle of our series on the book of Ezra, where we are walking with the Jewish people as they go through the process of rebuilding their faith, rebuilding their temple, and rebuilding their community in Jerusalem as they come back out of exile. In week one, I provided some background to the book of Ezra, including the history that led to the Jews being in exile in the first place. We also dove into some of the prophetic texts where God sowed promises for this rebuilding into the future of the Jewish people, allowing us to recognize those promises when they are fulfilled as we go throughout the book of Ezra. And then last week, Pastor Richard covered chapter 3, and he discussed how rebuilding must begin always at the altar, both figuratively and literally. We must bring everything we have to God in order to rebuild something beautiful and something healthy. And from there... By giving of their time and their energy and their offerings, not only the altar, but the foundation of the temple was built by the Jewish people. And so today we are diving into chapter four, where we are still in phase one of the rebuilding project, and it is under the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel. Say that ten times fast. I'm going to in this sermon. And uh, we will see in the text today that when we seek to rebuild our lives on God's promises and root our lives in God's grace, we can expect opposition from the enemy, both through external factors as well as within ourselves. But during this period of rebuilding that the Jews are in, we receive hope because, as we're going to see, there is another ultimate promise of the one who has come to destroy all opposition. But before we dive into scripture and see that promise come to fruition, let's go ahead and pray together. Lord God, we worship you and we glorify you and we thank you so much for waking us up this morning and for bringing us into this space. It is an honor and privilege that we can be here this morning, that we can sing to you, that we can learn about you, that we can gather in community and that we can pray to you and know that you are here Lord, I pray that this morning this message would touch the hearts of the folks in this room, that everyone in this space would receive a pointed message, that they would hear exactly what they need to hear, Lord, that I would be able to fade into the background and your words would speak so loudly to people. We love you and we worship you and we thank you for this space and this community and this opportunity to learn about you, God. In your name we pray, amen. Well, today we are going to focus on opposition. And opposition is something that we don't often talk about as a people of faith in 2019 because by biblical standards, when we are referring to opposition, we are talking about the work of the enemy. We are talking about the work of Satan and the forces of darkness that try to act against any good and perfect thing that would advance the kingdom of God. And we often avoid talking about opposition because We either see it as scary, since we haven't taken the time to educate ourselves about it, or because we don't see darkness in the same ways as we might see it play out in Scripture. And so maybe we presume that it it doesn't affect us. But that's not true. And if we don't talk about it, we are not going to be equipped to handle opposition when it comes our way. And so what we're going to see in Ezra chapter 4 today is how opposition plays out in our lives and what we need to be prepared for if we are going to live God-honoring lives. Because the enemy doesn't waste his time 
on things that don't concern him. He has an agenda, and that is to bring destruction to any good and pleasing thing that glorifies or honors God. And so as people of faith, when we are rooting our lives in Christ and acting accordingly, we should not be surprised if the enemy tries to halt our efforts. So let's look at how the Jewish people experienced opposition from the enemy and what we can learn from their story in Ezra chapter 4. Turn with me in your Bibles or your smartphones or direct your eyes to the screen behind me. And we're actually going to start at Ezra uh, 3 verse 10. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good and his love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid and the sound was heard from far away. Chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. First of all, looking at that first section of scripture, if there is anything that the enemy hates, it's worship. Scripture says that the sound of them worshiping was heard from far away. And so as the Jews were worshiping God once they completed the foundation, it is no surprise that this triggered incoming opposition. Because they weren't only praising God for the completion of the altar and the completion of the foundation of the temple being built, but they were praising God for what he would do in the future. And they sang, his love toward Israel endures forever. And so that is the cue for the enemy to run in and try to stop it to try to stop their efforts. Second, there are deeper reasons why the Jews do not want help with this building project from this neighboring group. If we look back at 2 Kings chapter 17, we see that while this foreign group did agree to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true God, they also were worshiping their own false idols at the same time. They had created a syncretistic religion where, depending on the influences of culture in a people group, different religious beliefs get blended together. And so they weren't wrong in saying that they seek the same God as the Jewish people who are doing this rebuilding. But scripture tells us in Exodus 3.20 that we are to have no other gods but the one true God. And so by this group worshiping multiple false gods, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin were essentially disqualified from being involved in this rebuilding project. And this is because during this time, Israel sought to preserve the ethnic and religious boundaries in the multicultural Persian Empire because it was from having really loose boundaries in the past for the Jewish people on you know, their different ethnic and social values that they ended up falling away from God and they ended up getting drawn into lives of sin after being influenced by the pagan cultures around them. 
And so they wanted to ensure that that didn't happen again as they started over and as they went on rebuilding this temple, which is why they refused partnership with outsiders. And it's a good thing that they did this because scripture goes on to say in verse 4, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So we have moved from King Cyrus's reign to Darius's reign, and we see the opposition is using scare tactics. They are bribing officials to discourage the people of Judah from pressing forward in the rebuilding of their temple. Now, there is more going on here under the surface that we don't read about in this chapter. See, the enemy neighbors who are going about opposing this rebuilding are likely concerned about the political and economic privileges that the Jews are going to receive from this as a new religious group. We learned a couple weeks ago that when the Jews were originally sent by King Cyrus of Persia, even though they were exiles, they were sent to rebuild and they were blessed by Cyrus with finances and provisions and supplies to help them with this rebuilding. And if that's not enough, now they are on the border of obtaining religious legitimacy, which would have positive implication for the Jews within this Persian culture. So in this instance, opposition reflects competition for political and economic privileges from the Persian Empire. And unfortunately, the opposition is being driven by things like insecurity and jealousy and fear of what this new religious group could mean for the surrounding people. And so for their own political gain, the enemy and the neighbors, they then use fear and discouragement to stop this building and frustrate the folks whose task it is to do the building. Now, this might sound familiar. We see fear and discouragement used today across the world in politics, especially to justify exclusion of people, groups, or cultures. And usually it stems from the same things. It stems from fear. It stems from jealousy. It stems from selfishness. And things of that matter, things that are not of God, but are of the enemy. And we see this on a personal level, too. It's often when we are being obedient to God, when we are hammering away in the construction zone and building a future that is honoring to God when the enemy tries to come in and sow discouragement and fear into that process. In fact, if you are doing God's work, if you are living your life being obedient to God and how scripture tells you to live, we can expect to face this kind of opposition in our life. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. At some point or another. And if we let it, opposition, it runs the risk of letting fear and discouragement seep into our daily walk and redirect us from God's purpose for our lives. Fear ends up paralyzing us and preventing us from moving forward. And discouragement can eat away at our motivation and cause apathy and complacency. These are two things that we have to look out for as Christians as we battle opposition too, but it's also what we're going to see later from the Jewish people. Now, fear and discouragement were not the only things that were halting their rebuilding, but this opposition group, they also made accusations against the people of Judah and Jerusalem, specifically choosing to focus on their past. 
as a reason why they can't have success in the future. Chronologically, we're going to fast forward a bit, and we're reading of a time when the enemy neighbors went so far to write a letter to the next king of Persia to basically make sure he knew about their past. Ezra 4, verse 12 through 16. It says, the king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if the city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under no obligation to the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. If these records, in these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition, and that is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in the trans-Euphrates. So this enemy group, they wrote to the new king, King Artaxerxes. And even though previously King Cyrus had approved people for this rebuilding, they take it upon themselves to bring up Israel's past. They call Jerusalem a rebellious and wicked city, being sure to only focus on the wrong that had taken place there in the past, ignoring all the good that God said would come of that space in the future. Now, this is ironic because both are actually written in the archives. If the king does go far enough into the archives, he would see King Cyrus's original commissioning of the Jewish people to go about with this rebuilding project, and he would also see prophecies coming to fruition that God would be with them in that city. Now, what the neighbors were saying about Jerusalem's past, though, it wasn't wrong. And this is where the enemy gets us, because the enemy is a liar, but he also will manipulate the truth and use it against us. Horrible and ungodly things had taken place among the Jewish people in the past, during a previous season of life when they distanced themselves from God and they were being influenced by the pagan cultures around them. But what is important is what God promised about this rebuilding season and what God said to be true about the future. God had promised 70 years before the rebuilding in Jeremiah 29 that he would rescue them and bring them out of captivity. Jeremiah 29.10 says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Despite the wrong that Israel had done, God offers them a future, and he says, I will come to you and fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. And we know that God's promises are trustworthy and they are true, because we see them come to fruition in Scripture. And this, this promise, it remains true for us, too. When we accept Jesus as our Savior and recognize the new life that only he can bring, we are given a clean slate and a future that is way better than our past and greater than we could possibly ever imagine. But even if God has forgotten your past and redeemed your future, we still run the risk of the enemy throwing our past in our face and trying to distract us from the future that God has. We run the risk of colliding with who we were 
and thinking that we are not worthy to step into the promises that God has for us. I guarantee that if it hasn't happened to you already, there will come a time in your life where you will think that your past disqualifies you from stepping into God's future plans for you. And all the enemy has to do is get you thinking about that one time that you failed, that one time that you messed up, that one time that you let someone you love down, that one time that you were a disappointment. Because that one time is enough opposition to pivot you from who God says you are and what he says about your future to who the enemy says you are. We are a weak people. We are weak, and like the Jews, we are at risk of being influenced by the opposition. In this case, opposition looks like rooting our future in our past mistakes instead of rooting our future in God's promises and in a relationship with him. We let the voices telling us that we're a screw-up, we aren't worthy, we aren't smart enough, we aren't good enough, we aren't qualified enough to play on repeat and we forget what God promised to be true about us. Just like the Jews forgot what God said about rebuilding their future when they faced this opposition from the enemy. See, the thing is, whatever our past might say about us, it remains true that we are not enough on our own. We are a broken people. And we can't erase our past, but we can know that if we have placed our future in God's hands, then there is no one and nothing that can take that future away from us. We don't belong to our past mistakes. We belong to Jesus who erased the stain of our mistakes away. We belong to a God who gives us an abundant future. So far, we have seen that opposition, it comes in the form of fear and discouragement. And it can also come from accusations about our past. But now, for the Jews, this was enough to halt the, re the rebuilding project. And we're going to see uh, that once, basically, they stop working, there is a third level of opposition that comes in that completely redirects their priorities. And this opposition, it comes from inside themselves. In Ezra 5, verse 1, we're redirected to two prophetic books, Haggai and Zechariah. The verse reads, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. And so as we study scripture, this is a cue for us, even though we're going through the book of Ezra, this is a cue for us to turn to those prophetic texts of Haggai and Zechariah, and it'll give us more insight to this period. And we learn here that finally... Sometimes opposition, it can come in the form of our own selfish ambition and apathy. So turn with me to Haggai 1, verse 1 through 9. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. 
You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Wow. So God comes in and just drops this truth bomb on the Jewish people. And (laughs) fear and discouragement and thoughts of the past, we see that they stop the rebuilding. But while the rebuilding of the temple was being neglected, the Jews then started to focus on rebuilding their own priorities. But what God is saying is that all their hard work, it was useless. The harder the people worked for themselves, the less they had, because God had fallen to the back of their minds. Therefore, their work, it was not productive, it was not fruitful, and he tells them, give careful thought to your ways. Is what you are building for me, or is it for you? Will what you are building bring glory to God? Or is it just an empty attempt to glorify yourself? See, when we face opposition, it can sometimes confuse our priorities. And we run the risk of putting what is easy, what is of this world, our own priorities, ahead of what God has called us to do. And sometimes we even think that it's okay to do that. And that's because the enemy loves to confuse us. But the antidote to this confusion, it is found in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, and it says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. To avoid getting confused by the enemy, to avoid redirecting our priorities and putting God on the back burner, we have to consistently and regularly draw near to God. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And in response to this opposition, God names it. He vocalizes where the Jews have gone wrong, and he reminds them, give careful thought to your ways. We have to ask ourselves, are we giving careful thought to our ways? Do the biggest priorities in my life right now honor God, or do they honor me? Do my priorities seek to build God's kingdom, or do they seek to build my own kingdom? Haggai chapter 2 Verse 1 through 3 says, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel and to the remnant of the people and ask them, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? God's asking, How many of you saw the first temple that was built under King Solomon and then was destroyed because of King Solomon's sin and because of the Jewish people's sin? He's referencing the opposition that this older crowd experienced in the form of discouragement as they thought that the new temple couldn't possibly be as good as the old one. He says, how does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. And we see here that scripture confirms scripture. Remember, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And he's saying, I will grant peace in this place. Some people in the community, they were opposing the work because they didn't think that the new temple would be anything as glorious as the old temple. But when we are rebuilding, we have to trust 
that God will do what only God can do, and it is up to us to do the work and just believe in his promises. He reminds them that his promises are trustworthy and true. He says, don't you remember 800 years earlier when I told your people that I would rescue you out of slavery in Egypt, and then I did? Just like that, my promises will be fulfilled and I will bring glory to this new house. What I need you to do, God says, I need you to be strong and work, for I am with you. Do not fear in this place. I will grant peace. As we go about rebuilding our lives, our relationships, our families, our communities, our church, whatever it was that you decided to focus on, during week one of what you're going to be rebuilding in this season, we must recognize that as we rebuild around God's promises and all the plans that he has for us in the future, the enemy's tactics are not going to change from what we read here today. He's not that creative. And the same thing that the enemy did to the Jewish people as they stepped into the future God has for them, the enemy is also going to do for you and me as we discern God's path and follow it. He is going to try his hardest to pivot you away from God's plans for your life. But in the face of opposition, over and over again, we have to choose obedience. Be strong and work, for I am with you. Do not fear I will grant peace in this place. Imagine what would happen if every time you faced a hurdle, instead of letting fear win, you reminded yourself of God's promises. Be strong and work, for God is with me. Do not fear. He will grant peace. Every time you were discouraged or frustrated, instead of choosing apathy and complacency, you told yourself, be strong and work, for God is with me. Do not fear. He will grant peace. And every time that the enemy reminds you of your past and tricks you into thinking that you are not worthy for what God has in store for you in the future, instead, you told yourself, be strong and work, for God is with me. Do not fear. He will grant peace peace. See, it's not just the Jews on this rebuilding journey who are facing opposition, but we read throughout scripture and we experience it ourselves that people are constantly facing opposition and battling evil in this world. But just as God promised the Jews a century earlier that they would rebuild the temple and he would be with them, 16 years after they started the rebuilding and then stopped it, the prophet Zechariah delivered an even greater message. He told the Jews that the opposition you are facing, the evil that is permeating your best efforts, the enemies that are surrounding you, the sin that you constantly are falling victim to, all of that would finally be stopped when a new king comes. While they are stuck in the middle of this rebuilding season, Zechariah prophesies, in 9-9 of the coming Savior. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And 500 years later, a king would come and fulfill that very promise made to the Jewish people 
so many years before, and that king's name would be Jesus. And Jesus would come entering Jerusalem on a donkey, preparing for his death, but also for the resurrection that would bring salvation to all people who believed in fulfillment of exactly what Zechariah sowed into the Jewish people's future. See, over 2,000 years later, we know the whole story. We know that the one causing opposition, he's already been defeated by Jesus. And in this world, he still tries to mess with us. He still tries to stop our rebuilding projects, but there will come a time in eternity when we will be face to face with Jesus and the opposition that we experienced of this world will be nothing but a distant, distant memory. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 3, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. And when we choose to fight opposition with obedience, when we choose to recall God's promises and believe in them, we can call on the one who is more powerful than any opposition that we might face and know that Jesus will be with us and his promises are true and they are trustworthy and they will endure above all else and above anything of this world. And so I want to take a minute now to just pray against any opposition that you might be experiencing in this season of life. Because as we root our futures in God's promises, as we are all in a rebuilding season in one way or another, the enemy is going to try to distract you. And if it's not happening now, it's going to happen in the future. And so I want to pray in Jesus' name against that opposition, against the opposition that you're facing in your relationships, in your family, in your community, at work, in this church even. We're going to pray against it knowing that Jesus is overcome. And he overcomes the power of the enemy. And we're going to ask God to do what, what only he can do as we seek his promises for our lives. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for the promises that you have sown into scripture. And we thank you that you not only make huge promises for us, but we have seen your promises come to fruition and it gives us a hope for the future. It gives us a hope so that when we face any opposition, we can know that we can call on you and you are right there with us. And so God, we pray now for the folks in this space, for the folks in our church who are experiencing opposition in one of their relationships or in their families, Lord. In Jesus' name, that you would just overpower that, that you would grant them peace. We pray for anyone that is facing opposition in their community, in their place of work, in the homes where they live, Lord. And in Jesus' name, we pray that you would remove that opposition and that you would bring them into a hopeful future. And we pray, Lord, for this church because we know, God, that we are doing an awesome thing, a really unique thing, and we thank you so much for all the people that pour into this space and pour into our future. But God, we know that if we're doing something good, the enemy is going to try to stop it. And so I pray, Lord, against any opposition there. In Jesus' name, that you would remove it and that we would follow you closely into the future, Lord. It is a joy that as we face opposition, we can know that you are right there with us. 
that you have defeated everything, Lord. You have defeated all, all the enemy, all the darkness, anything that could have a hold on us. And we keep in mind the hope for the future of knowing that we will one day be face to face with you. And that the opposition of this world will no longer hurt us, no longer harm us, but you have overcome. And we praise you for that now, God. We thank you and we glorify you. And we ask that you would be with us as we go about rebuilding. In your name we pray. Amen.